0: The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 28,
1: verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching
0: them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. It's my joy to introduce our preacher for today. Everyone, this is uh, Dr. Wilson Pang. He's married to Esther, who can't be here with us because she's back in the States. And Dr. Pang lives in uh, Colorado, and he has three adult children, 25, 23, and 21. Yes. Yeah. What are their names?
1: My oldest is Rebecca. Second is Ashley. All of you single guys, they're gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> and then my youngest is the 21-year-old, and he's the tallest. I think he's in meters 182, somewhere in that vicinity. So trying to be uh, Jeremy Lin.
0: <laughs> so also very eligible.
1: <laughs> also very eligible.
0: <laughs> so what do they do? Do they come find you after the service and <laughs> give you photographs? <laughs> uh, you're originally from Malaysia, yes. And and you spent some time living in Singapore as well, I where did. you taught at East for about yes. six years. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: From 2000 to 2006, I ran the Masters in Pastoral Counseling program at East Asia School of Theology here.
0: Hmm. Uh, and tell, tell us what, what you do now. I think you founded this ministry called Ministry Personnel Care in 2015. Yeah. So would you like to tell us a bit about that?
1: In 2006, I moved from East Asia School of Theology to a group called Barnabas International. And they do this thing called Member Care. I never did like that term, Member Care, because when I say that's what I do, folks say member of what? And I can't quite say Tomasic Club. <laughs> So, the organization that I then founded is called Ministry Personnel Care. We provide care to those who are in full-time ministry.
0: And and you are uh, a supporter of biblical counseling. Yes. So what is biblical counseling?
1: Oh, we can spend the next two hours talking about that. (laughs) But probably the easiest way is to think of it as a continuum. On this far extreme over here, You have folks who say the Bible and the Bible only, and anything that is clinical or psychological is of the devil. So you have those extremes, views. You have the other view where you have clinicians who are Christians, but had you not bumped into them in church, you probably wouldn't know because everything they do doesn't, doesn't extol the name of christ so you have the two extremes where am i i'm somewhere in the middle
0: <laughs> uh, why is biblical counseling so helpful for not just churches but for missions as well
1: Ah, well i i hope some of you can come and join me at 11 o'clock but missions has to do with caring it's not just about conversion it's about caring and counseling provides some good tools on how to care and not just care but for those who care who receive your care feel cared for and that's what counseling is
0: mm. and, and who's responsible for the care is it just the elders of the church or is it just you know paid staff missionaries or who's responsible good question
1: i remember years and years ago i went to south korea to seoul And churches, they are huge. I went to a church about 40-some thousand members big, and they had their missions department. And the missions department was staffed with about 50-some staff. I thought, my goodness, that's a church. And they had their separate own building. And on the top of that building, underneath the name, was the inscription, Go or Send. And I said, and where's the care? So the calling to care is to all of us. So when you think about the Great Commission, it's not just to workers, it's to every single one. When you think about the word go, where are we going? It doesn't have to be overseas. It doesn't have to be Cambodia. It can be just across the hallway to the HDB unit right across from you. That's going. So the call is to everybody.
0: Amen. Uh, yeah, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to stick, stick around after the service and teach an equip class for us. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, you can, Wilson, you're going to teach about how, does, how can a church equip herself in biblical counseling. As, as you said, we're all responsible for giving care uh, to ourselves, to, to workers, to missionaries, and, and, and so on. Uh, so I do encourage us to avail ourselves for this class. It's going to happen at 11 a.m. after the service, and there'll be refreshments in the room as well. Uh, So do stick around for the class. Wilson's going to talk about how we as a church can care for one another as well as for the workers among us and the workers we send out from us as well. And that's something that all of us have the responsibility to do. So do come and be equipped uh, to do that well. Uh, Wilson, can I pray for you before you preach for us? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for uh, this servant of yours whom you have raised up to serve you. Father, we We pray for Wilson as he brings uh, the Word to us. We pray that you would strengthen him, help him to preach clearly and faithfully, and we pray that we would have open hearts and open ears to receive your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, good morning again. I found out that Pastor Ian, next week, starts his short period of taking a little bit of time off. I don't know about you, but time of rest is something that is extremely important, and we're all called to do it because our wise God says, if you don't do it, how can you then enter into my eternal rest? But I I am so pleased that I can actually be here today and let him sit on the side. And not preach today. It reminds me of years and years ago when I went to seminary and then I took a preaching class and the instructor, dear friend now, Bruce Fong, he would sit on the side while the rest of us would all give a short message, but in his hands was a metal dustpan and a metal spatula. And if he, if he heard us break any of his preaching rules, he would clang it. And as we started, we couldn't finish a sentence without him clanging us. And we were so nervous. But I'm glad to see Pastor Ian does not have those tools in his hands. So I'm good. Uh, I like this start perhaps with a short story i am from malaysia i am an uh, anak malaysia and then i came over to singapore to do my o levels and my a levels and now i can say i'm in a st andrews boy when i was still over there on alexandra road after my a levels i went overseas to the us to study As we think about missions, my journey into missions, after a a bunch of schooling, I was in practice in psychiatry. Did that for 13 years. Before the end of my 13 years, my wife said to me, Wilson, what do you think about the mission field? Full-time ministry. And I thought, Why would I want to do that? I'm doing good. My practice is good. We're comfortable. Why would I want to do that? Live as a missionary, it's not easy. And so began my struggle. When God calls and you do not listen, he does one of two things. He either gets louder or he gets very soft. In my experience, he got very soft. And so as I struggled and I felt God being so quiet, I knew I had to lay down everything that I have. And so I said, all right, shut down my practice, go into the mission field. What shall I do? A good friend of mine is with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He said, you should, tra- you should think about us. So I talked to them, and they said, we have a huge mission base in Ukurampa, Papua New Guinea. Now, I grew up in this side of the world. I know Papua New Guinea. You hear stories about Papua New Guinea. And they said, that's what we will have you do you're in psychiatry. You're going to go over there and you're going to take care of our missionaries there. And I thought, you want me to go to Papua New Guinea with three little children? That's a tough place. And so my struggle did not end and I struggled some more and I struggled some more. And finally I said, all right, I'll go to Papua New Guinea. And Wycliffe Connected at the hip, cousins, if you want to call it that, cousins with at that time Campus Crusade for Christ, today Crew. Well, Crew is the one that has East Asia School of Theology here in Singapore. They have four schools the one here in Singapore, the one in Manila, the one in Amman, Jordan, the one in Nairobi, Kenya. Four schools. Singapore is the only one that has an MA counseling. But the person who was running the counselling program, Harold Roberts, my schoolmate, left and they had nobody. So they reached out to Wycliffe and they said, we need somebody to run that program like yesterday. You know anybody? And Wycliffe says, well, we have this guy, Wilson. We're going to send him to Ukrampa, Papua New Guinea. But if you really need him, You can have him. So, I have prepared my heart to go to Ukarampa and rolled into seminary where I got claimed. And lo and behold, I get a phone call. Hi, this is Crew. We're in Singapore. You're not going to Ukarampa. You're coming to Singapore. And I go, oh, God, if you had said Singapore, I would say, sure, I'll go. I know Singapore, O-levels, A-levels here. I like the laksa here and the lomi. I'll come, but no, God said Ukurumpa. You see, while God requires our hands, much more he requires our heart. Isn't that what he did with Abraham? Give me back Isaac. He requires our hearts. Does he want us our hands? Very much so. But hands without the heart behind it, well, that's not what he desires. And that's what today's message is about. If we think about this month here at Grace Baptist Church, a church that I'm very fond of, although I recognize it not a bit. I'm familiar with um, more the days of Polson and Tom Chandler and even Peter Lynn, friends. About 15, yeah, about 15 years ago, somewhere around there, I baptized all three of my children here. Tom Chandler arranged it, and I baptized my three children. So this church has a special place in my heart, And today, this church is having Great Commission month. So I like for us to just consider the Great Commission. It was read to you, Matthew 28. That's the Great Commission. Go, Go. There are songs written about the Great Commission. Go! In fact, they say it like that. Our reader didn't, but some of them will say, here is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go! Into all the earth and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And I am with you. And the emphasis is on the word. Go! Gotta go. Are you going? You're not going? Oh, shame on you. So the emphasis is on going. I've got news for you. The word go is not the verb, the, the do. The verb is the do if you remember your English 101. The verb is the do, and in fact, here we find an imperative verb, which means not just a do, a must do, a must do. But it is not the word go. The word go is a participle. Hmm. I don't remember what a participle is. I'll give you a cheat. A participle are words ending with the letters I-N-G. That's a participle. So this is how the Great Commission reads. As you are going, as I'm going where? As you are going about life, and then comes the rest of it. There are two other participles, the word baptize and the word teach. As you're going, by baptizing them, by teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you, by doing these three things you can fulfill the must do the imperative verb and what is that church matthew 28 go and there you go that's your imperative verb make disciples right yeah You following me? If you are, you follow me down the wrong road because the answer is wrong. The imperative verb is not make disciples. Now you're scratching your head and going, okay. It's not baptize. It's not teach. It's not go. It's not make disciples. What's left? There's nothing left, Wilson, what's left? Well, no offense to some Bible translations or even to my dear friend, Edmund Chan, who started the, what is it called? Uh, Intentional Disciple-Making Church. When you take the word make and you put it in front of a verb, disciple, You change the verb. Let me give this to you as an example. All of you here like Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yeah? KFC, good stuff. Good stuff. Singapore's KFC is even better. Why? You've got your special chili sauce here that we don't have over there. When you say to a person who works for Kentucky Fried Chicken, before you fry the chicken, I want you to bread it, put the breading around it. So here, the word bread is a verb. This is something you do, bread the chicken. Now, what happens if I take the word bread and I stick the word make in front of it? Make bread. Or as they say here, right? Make bread. Now, all of a sudden, bread is no longer a verb. Bread is a product. Bread is a thing. Let me try this. This is a phrase that is more common in the US. When we tell someone, try and table your worries. Table your worries. The word table here, verb. Something you do. Stick the word make in front of it. Make table. Table now? Piece of wood. Or not. Could be other material. What happens when you say make disciples? Something happens. Something happens. Disciples become a product, an outcome. Those of you who are leadership business people, it becomes outcome-based. What is our outcome? Disciples. What do we do? We make them. Hmm. I think we just stepped off the boat. We just stepped off the boat. I would like to propose to you the Great Commission. As you are going about your life, disciple the nations. Disciple the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. And remember, I'm with you all the way to the ends of the earth. I'm with you. What are we called to do? What is the must do? It's to disciple them. Now you go, oh, now in this part of the globe, the word disciple, sometimes people think, so when you have a disciple, you are the sifu. I don't feel like being a sifu, a master. I don't feel capable. Oh, it's actually not that difficult. To disciple someone is to walk with them, is to do life with them. Is when you say, I'm going to cold storage, you want to come with me? When someone says, hey, I'd like to spend some time with you, you say, well, you know, I'm going about doing life, and I'm going to cold storage or NTUC, would you like to come with me? And you walk with them, and you do life with them. It's really not that difficult. As long as Christ is shining brightly in you, you walk with them. So the Great Commission is to disciple the nations. That's what we're called to do, every single one of us. Not just a church worker or a pastor or an elder. Now the question i like to pose to you is this. What prompts you to want to fulfill the Great Commission? What prompts you? Perhaps you say, well, it's the Great Commission. And because it is the Great Commission, I have to obey. And if that were the case, I would say, good for you. Good for you. You see the preeminence, the importance in this one instruction. This one must do. Good for you. However, it could be better. There is an analogy that has been given once that says, this was a professor of time management. And he used the analogy, sometimes I actually do this, but I didn't want to mess up your beautiful sanctuary because it can get messy. He takes a big glass vase, a see-through translucent vase. He takes a huge rock, sticks it in there, he says, is it full? The class said, no. He then takes some stones, small stones, pours it in there. He says, is it full? They said, no. He takes some gravel and then some sand. And each time, those very bright students said, no, it's not full yet. Finally, he fills it with water, fills it all the way to the brim. And then he says, is it full? And then the student says, yeah, it's full now. And he says, What lesson can we learn? Now, this is a time management seminar. And the student says, When you think your schedule is full, you can always squeeze more in. And he says, Oh boy, you missed the point. Here's the point if you don't put your big rock in first, it won't fit. You have to put your big rock in first and everything else works around it. So the question here is, when it comes to the Great Commission, what is the big rock? What is the central thing that prompts us to say, yes, yes, Lord. What is the central thing? If it is obedience, it is a good one, but it can be better perhaps you say, well, we read it even today. It's, it's to point to God, to point to His glory, to give Him glory, and that would be a good one. That would be a good one. Where do we see that? We see that in, in my days when I was a child, we call it the catechism. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? What is the reason why man exists? But to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And you say, see, there it is. That's why we exist. We exist to glorify Him. And that is a good, good foundation to prompt yourself. I fulfill the great commission. I disciple the nations to glorify God. Good for you. Keep doing that. Don't stop but I would like to challenge you a little bit. You remember the story of Haman and Mordecai, Book of Esther? Well, when King Arthur Xerxes told Haman, you know, Mordecai saved my life. I want you to, here it is, glorify him, raise him up half a parade, walk around town with him up being carried and yell, hear ye, hear ye, here is Mordecai. He's one cool dude. Glorify him. And we all know, if you remember the story, Haman hated Mordecai. He wanted Mordecai dead. So sometimes, even though we glorify something or someone, our hearts could still be in the wrong place. And so my challenge to you today, all these are good motivators for fulfilling the Great Commission. But I have to challenge you, unless you go back to the One, not the Great, but the Greatest, the Greatest Command. We see it in Deuteronomy 6, where the word shema is used. And you say, what's a shema? A shema is a listen up. Listen up. That's a shema. Listen up. The Lord God is one. He is one. There's no others. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus repeats it. You shall love your Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's another issue I have with translations. So Jesus was asked the question, what is the one, uno, Ika. satu? What is the one thing that I must do? to inherit the kingdom of God. And our translation says Jesus answered this way, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as you would yourself. So ask for one, get two? Really? No, ask for one, and one is given the preeminence so the translation and the second is not exactly not exactly love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the same is and the same is love your neighbor as you would yourself let me illustrate it this way Not a true story. One day you might meet my wife, Esther, extremely gorgeous woman too. And you might ask her and she'll say, this never happened because it never did. But this is a good analogy. Let's just say one day my wife, Esther, opens up a box that she pulled out of storage, dusty. And out of it, she pulls out this old ceramic porcelain thing. It's green it's thick it's old and she says to me my great grandmother gave it to my grandmother, my grandmother gave it to my mother and my mother now gives it to me and then she puts it in the middle of the dining table and she says wow and then she walks away and I look at that porcelain thing and I go "Ah." Oh. Don't even match our decor. Not terribly fond of it. But the children run in. They were little at that time. And they started running circles, chasing each other around the dining table. And I raise my voice. And I say, Children, play outside. Because I don't want you to knock that table and break mom's precious porcelain piece. What have I just done? I have cared for that porcelain piece, which I don't really care for, but I have cared for it. What motivates me? My love for my wife motivates me to then love this piece of porcelain. Why? Because she loves it. Because she loves it. When we are called, love your neighbor as you would yourself. Perhaps some of you say, I know some neighbors, they're not easy to love. I know some neighbors, I don't want to love that neighbor. And even then, if you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how do you do that? You can't quite give God a hug because Scripture is very clear. God is not flesh. He's spirit. The only part of God that is flesh, that took on flesh, is Christ, who is not here anymore. He's at the right-hand side of God. So how do we give him a hug? You can't. But if you love on those whom he loves, then you love him. At the 11 o'clock session, I'll jump a little bit more into that part. So, what is the Great Commission? Disciple the nations. What should motivate us? The desire to obey. The desire to glorify. The desire to love. As you love, especially the lost, as you love, you are like Christ. When Christ looked upon the crowds, And he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He said, I'll fix it. No, it says it very clear. He said, and he was moved with compassion. Love must be the motivating thing. When you look upon those who are without the shepherd, I hope you will be moved with compassion and in your compassion then you shall share the good news with them. You shall share the good news with them. I'd like to end today by planting ourselves in that whole phrase, good news. You know the Great Commission is in Matthew, but when you look about the Great Commission elsewhere, it says, now. Preach the good news to all the nations. So think about the word good news. The news has to be good. If the news is not good, then chances are it won't be received. That is pretty much what happened in Japan. The gospel has been in Japan for over 700 years. Missionaries have been going there since the days of Shogun. How many followers of Christ are in Japan today? Till today, less than 1%. And that includes the Catholic Church. And you go, wow. All those years, all that effort, not much fruit. That's right. And we can come up with all kinds of reasons why. But perhaps the one that I would like to propose to you is this. When you go to a Japanese and you say to them, I've got good news for you. Boy, do I have good news for you. You're a sinner. By the way, there is no direct equivalent word for sinner. In the Japanese language, nor in the Chinese language. The closest is criminal. Those of you who do your kuo Yi is Fan uh, Choi. It's walking up to someone and say, Boy, I've got good news for you. You are a criminal. Doesn't sound that good to me. And so they turn around, and they say, thank you, but no. The news has to be good. I leave you today with something that I did. It's so close to me that I spent years writing my dissertation on it. It's called The Other Two-Thirds of the Gospel. It's not the Gospel telling folks that they are sinners, and that Christ died for their sins. Yes! I'm not proposing a new gospel to you. It is that. But that gospel is truncated. It's truncated. It's cut off. There's a chunk missing. How do we see that? Go back to the beginning. Go back to, in fact, the word Genesis, the beginning. God created, chapter 1, side note, Chapter 1 has been found to be one of the more boring chapters. Why do people find chapter 1 so boring? Because they don't see themselves in there, and they say, where's me? It's just all about creation. Chapter 2, now we bring man in. Creation. This is how God created us to be. Chapter 3, the fall of man. Now, in chapter 2, we see God says, and man and woman, they were naked and without shame. And then we see in chapter three, after they sinned, what happened? They were ashamed, they were ashamed. God had to put loincloths on them. What else happened? And when God came into the garden, when he walked into the garden, another side note, God walked? Footsteps? Yeah, uh, I thought God was not flesh. Some theologian says, when did Jesus take on flesh? Amazing thinking. Well, I'm not going to go there because that's above my pay grade. I don't think like that. But when God walked in, they hid, for they were afraid." What is the one encouragement that is repeated more than any others? Some would actually say it's a commandment repeated more than any others in the entire Bible. Two words, fear not, do not be anxious, worry not, Fear not. Do not be afraid. With the fall of man came sin, came fear, and came shame. By the way, this shame is not the shame that we think it is, for they were both naked without clothing and yet unashamed. Ah, well today, if I were walking around without clothing, I would be ashamed. I would turn around, I would be ashamed. And you're thinking, that's what Genesis is talking about. Well, I would propose to you that it is not. I would propose to you that it is a different kind of shame. Why would I say that? How many men existed in Genesis 2? One. Who's that, Adam? How many women? One. Who's that? Eve. Now, Eve does not have a reference point for a good hunk hunka man where she can say, Wow, now that is a good-looking guy. And you, Adam, eh, Not exactly. A little bit pudgy over here. No points of reference. Same thing for Eve. No points of reference. So when we say they were without shame about the nakedness, are we talking simply physical nakedness? I would propose not because there's no point of reference. What is an ideal naked body versus and then there's you. What we see here, however, in chapter 3, I think, verse 12, when God walked in for the first time The break of the unity and the two shall become one was broken. And Adam said, well, she, the woman, she made me eat of the fruit. And by the way, it's the woman that you gave to me. You see that? For the first time, there's shaming. There's the it's not me, it's her. And, and, and not just her, God, it's it's you. Wow. For the first time there's shaming, there's judgment, there's finger pointing. With the fall came sin, came fear, and came shame. Where did I get this brilliant thought? Well, I'm not that brilliant. It's me reading a whole bunch of anthropology and sociology books and looking at this thing called worldview. And they say there are three worldviews in this globe. There is the one that emphasizes on what is right and wrong. You see that in Western Europe, Australia, the U- uh, North America. I have to say North America, I have a Canadian here. North America. And guess what? Singapore. You guys are in here. Singapore is quite unique. We'll get there in a moment. Then you have the big part of the globe that is fear-driven. Here you have people who are afraid of the guy who has the army and the guns, the Idi Amins, the Papadocs. But there's a different kind of fear too. The fear of what is unknown. So when you go to your tanki and your bomo, you're afraid. You're saying, you have the direct line to the spirits. Speak to them for me, for I'm afraid. You have that. There's that fear, the fear of something that you do know. And then there's the fear of the unknown. And then there's shame. You see a lot of shame-based cultures. Singapore is unique because of its history. You are probably the only one that I know that is all three quite equally. I know a lot of countries that are the other two, fear and shame based. Some of them more fear, less shame. Some of them more shame, less fear. Singapore is all three. You have your heritage from the British coming. And so there's, okay, I I can assimilate with that. I can embrace, do what is right. And when you do what is wrong, own up to it, move on. That's the West. And that's the gospel of sin. But we're also fear-based. We also have tankies and bomos and, what is it, Siamese temples that put amulets under your mattress and make you uncomfortable and all those kind of belief systems. There is the fear base. You're also a shame-based society. If you share the good news, share it in a way that is good. That God, through Christ, has come to redeem you from your sin and your shame and your fears. The best way I can probably give you this is the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. When he came back, the father ran to him. Why did he run to him? Was the father standing up on top of his tower and looking up with binoculars and say, Ah, there he is. He's coming back. Hike up his royal robe and run and do a very unhonorable thing and run out to him? Is that what happened? Actually, what happened is this. Here he is coming back and the whole village knows what he has done and pretty much they're saying, shame on you. What kind of a son are you? You're not a good son. They might actually do more than say it to him. They might pelt him with things. They might do harm to him. So when the father heard word, your son is walking down the road up there. When he enters the village, he's going to get pummeled. And his father hiked up his robes, ran out to his son, did three things. And here are your three worldviews. The son was covered with pig muck filthy. He took off his royal robe and covered his filth. And the blood of Christ covers all sins. And then what did he do next? He took off the family signet ring. Now, I I have this thing on my finger, which is not popular here in Singapore. It's called a school ring. Everyone who sees it says, oh, is that where you went to school? Yes, that is. The other ring I'm more fond of. Oh, are you married? Yes, I am. It says something. A ring says something. He puts the family ring on his son that tells the whole village, see that ring? You see that ring. You recognize. This is my son. You will not shame him if you honor me. You honor him. Because he has my ring on his finger. Address the filth, the sin. Address the shame. And then what's the third thing the father did? Go put some sandals on his feet. Look at it. It's all blistered and bloodied and filthy. Put some slippers on his feet and go prepare a feast for, in fact, what brought the son back to the father? What was the one motivator? Was it, I need to get right with my father? No. Was it, I feel shamed, I am such a dishonorable son? No. It was more, I'm going to die. I don't know if I'll live till tomorrow. He had squandered everything he had, and he was starving. And he was afraid. There it is, fear. And the father said, Don't be afraid anymore. Shoes on your feet, food on the table. You don't have to be afraid anymore. What is the good news to the son? Your sins are forgiven, covered up. Your honor is redeemed. There is no more shame. You are now a child of God, readopted, you are mine. You are co-heirs with Christ himself. There is no shame anymore. And finally, there is no fear anymore. Fear not. Do not be afraid. For I am with you all the time. As you consider great commission, good news, how do you do it? Speak to them to those who are without the shepherd. Address their fears. Address their shame. Address their sin. All three. Do not leave one out. I have a little slide that i like to put up for you. Don't know if... Yeah, there it is. John Stott. Some of you know him. When we talk about evangelism, it does not mean to win converts, but to simply announce the good news, irrespective of the results. and It's not about converting. It's not about making. It's not about numbers. It's about discipling. Discipling because we love he who God loves, she who God loves. That's why we do it. How do we do it? Speak to them at their point of need. If what is most out front is fear, shame, sin. That's the door that's open. You walk through that door. You bring the other two also. But that's your starting point. In this culture, we have all three. So you can enter in all three forms. But you have to speak to them in a way that says, Wow, this is good news. Instead of going, What did you just call me? Consider the Great Commission. Do it for God. Do it with love. Reach in such a way that they hear good news. Thank you.